Welcome to the Untold Civil War. This episode is dedicated to the late Albert Connor, the man who did the research and pinpointed the moment the Army of the Potomac made its Rocky Balboa comeback and won the war. This is what this podcast is all about. Those untold stories that are so impactful to our understanding of the conflict. Albert Connor found and brought to light one of these stories in his book, Seizing Destiny, The Army of the Potomac's Valley Forge and the Civil War Winter that Saved the Union. I sit with co-author Chris Mikowski to discuss this great topic. So button up that sack coat, muster up on the parade field. It's time to drill, 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 drill some untold Civil War. Welcome to the Untold Civil War, and I'm here with Chris Mikowski. Really, there's no introduction needed at this point. I'm <laughs> sure everybody knows uh, this gentleman uh, and the emerging Civil War. So thank you so much for coming on the show, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on and all you do for the Civil War uh, storytelling and getting the word out. Uh, Paul, it's my privilege to be here. Thanks so much for asking me. It's a delight. I've got to say, though, like, I wish I had a kepi that I could wear at a rakish angle. Like you, have right now. you look really good in that kepi. <laughs> yeah, I, I usually, you know, this is the only appropriate, socially appropriate time, right, where I can actually uh, wear it without looking like a total loon. But uh, yeah. <laughs> well, to, to kick off the interview, I just wanted to ask you, how did Emerging Civil War get its start? I mean, this is such a great thing you have going here. Yeah, thanks for asking. This is actually our 10th anniversary. It was uh, 10 years ago in August that uh, my friend Chris White and I were sitting down with our colleague Jake Struhelka on the front porch of the Caretaker's Cottage at the Stonewall Jackson Tribe. And the three of us had worked together at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. And we're um, smoking cigars and drinking beers, as good history always happens. And we just thought, you know, we should start up a blog. And, and instead of just, you know, one or two of us, like, we should get a bunch of guys and ladies together whose work we really support and use that as a platform for getting everybody's voices out there. And so we started this collaborative effort. We never bothered a dozen of us when we got started. And uh, we've just continued to grow ever since. Uh, you know, some people have left. Other people have come on. There are about 30 active members right now. And the idea is that we just love telling stories about the Civil War. So we're out spreading the gospel of the Civil War, trying to tell those stories in ways that make it easy for people to connect to the history and, and get interested and captivated uh, so that, you know, it's kind of like a gateway drug so that uh, people can get hooked. Oh, absolutely. And it, it really is a multimedia project. I mean, you've got videos, you've got all sorts of content, uh, you know, published books. And, you know, we're just trying to offer a bunch of different channels for our historians so that they can explore the war and share it in ways that are of interest to them at a particular time. So, you know, we've got a, a podcast that we do. We've got some YouTube stuff, a lot of social media. Uh, but really, the blog is our bread and butter, EmergingCivilWar.com. Uh, and then, uh, you know, everything springs from there. But, you know, at the core of what we do, free content every day, because we want people to stay connected to this history. Absolutely. And, you know, on this show, of course, we talk about untold stories, which is why when I picked up your book with uh, Albert Connor, Seizing Destiny, I knew that was a story that I really never heard before. And I don't think many people have. Uh, so I really wanted to interview and re uh, interview you in regards to uh this topic. Uh, how did you find the story? I'd be glad to tell you about it, except that then it would be told Civil War history. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's 
Um, you know, it's a great subject. And, and this is really, I'll start right off the bat by saying this book was Al's baby. Uh, this was his research idea, his project. The, the amount of work that he did to put this book together research-wise was just absolutely stunning. Uh, and his premise is that everyone pays attention to the battles. You know, that's the sexy part. But the vast majority of what soldiers are doing in their army service is sitting around a camp or marching from one place to another. Um, so it's really mostly downtime. So he started thinking like, how, how are the armies using that downtime? And he really focused in on the winter of 62, 63 as a significant downtime, in part because uh, you know he lived right in the area where these winter encampments took place. And he's like, well, what's really going on here? Uh, and the more he looked into it, the more he realized that you know, there wasn't a battle going on during that time, yet the Army of the Potomac, the major army in the Eastern Theater, was undergoing one of its absolute most important transformations during that time. And it was really something that was going on under the radar, um, you know, behind the scenes, choose your metaphor. But it was, it was just something that had gone unexplored. And so Al committed himself um, to really exploring this story. For those listeners who might not know exactly what we're talking about, uh, the book Seizing Destiny is on the Army of the Potomac's quote-unquote Valley Forge, right? Uh, the Civil War winter that saved the Union. Can you talk a little bit about that title and maybe the primary sources that went into describing this as the Union's Valley Forge? Because it wasn't just something you guys came up with it. This is something the soldiers described it as well, right? Correct. Um, Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin is the first soldier to actually coin that phrase, although it shows up in a lot of soldier correspondence over the course of the winter subsequently. And let me just read this to you, and I apologize that I'm reading rather than reciting this, but this is coming in the, uh, the wake of the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862, the Union Army suffers its most lopsided defeat of the whole war. Morale is terrible. Desertion is at an all-time high. And in late December, uh, Dawes writes home. Uh, he's 24 years old. He was born on the 4th of July, patriotic guy. People might know him from his work, Gettysburg near the Railroad Cup. He says, the Army seems to be overburdened with second-rate men in high positions from General Burnside on down. Commonplace and whiskey are too much in power for the most hopeful future. The winter is indeed the valley forge of the war. And what he's really referring to is this nadir in fortunes. Just, you know, uh, nobody's impressed with Burnside. The army suffered this big defeat. Now they're in a winter encampment. People aren't living up to the American ideals. You know, everyone uh, in, in the command structure seems to be mediocre at best. Commonplace is too common. And so is whiskey, <laughs> which is something else does credits for a lot of the morale problems. And so they're really sort of toiling in mud and misery at this point uh, in late December of 62. And just making it even worse, of course, it's supposed to be Christmas time. They're all supposed to be home and they're not. And the Emancipation Proclamation is about to come into effect, which is a game changer as far as just the whole frame of the war. And yet Lincoln has not been able to get a battlefield victory to give any sort of muscle to the Emancipation Proclamation. And so there are just all these things that really create this sense of despair in the Army of the Potomac. Burnside is no George Washington, and Dawes wishes somebody was. Right, right. And so the, the army is at an all-time low at this point, right? So something has to happen to reorganize this army to get it back on its feet. What, what is a catalyst for that? 
the real catalyst turns out to be a new change in commander. Um, Fighting Joe Hooker is going to be named to be the new commander of the Army of the Potomac. Um, and mostly, you know, Burnside's trying. I give the guy a little bit of credit. If, if the one adjective I always see associated with Burnside is affable. Like, everybody liked the guy, but he just wasn't, like, he wasn't where it was at. Uh, and he finally offers to resign after the mud march in, in late January. And so he took command of the Army of the Potomac so that Joe Hooker wouldn't get the job. But now that Burnside's out, Hooker's path is finally cleared. And he comes in and he cleans house in dramatic sorts of ways. And, you know, most people remember Hooker for his abysmal performance at Chancellorsville in May of 1863. And they forget this incredible transformation that he triggers. And he really deserves a lot of credit for what he's able to do to bring this army back from the brink of its despair. Well, let's get into that. Uh, what exactly are some of the things that he implemented that changed the Army of the Potomac? He is going to go soup to nuts, if you'll pardon yet another cliche, and really pay attention to the soldiers themselves to try to uh, really from the ground up build morale back up. So he'll do things like make sure that every regiment has an oven that they can bake fresh bread in. You know, suddenly, you know, fresh warm bread every day. That's a huge morale booster. We tend to think of these awful hard pieces of hard tack. Hooker wanted fresh bread. He's going to make sure that everyone's got something constructive to do. So he's really going to institute a pretty rigorous sense of discipline with drill. Uh, these guys are you know, not going to just be lazing about in their camps. Drill, 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 drill. Part of that is to just, again, refine their battlefield prowess, but it also gives them that sense of purpose and that sense of discipline and, and helps make them be proud of the work that they're doing of soldiers. Another thing he really does to instill uh, pride, and this is really in, in part to his uh, chief of staff, Daniel Butterfield, Butterfield, excuse me, is that he institutes the corps badge system so that every corps has a distinct insignia, and then each division within the corps has its own distinct color. And so then you sew these onto your patches and it's much like today when we have a mascot for our favorite sports team it's something that we can look at we can take pride in and this is our team this is our sense of identity this is who we are this is the team we belong to and it really does a lot to raise the elan of the men uh, and again you think like oh they're just going to sew some patches on their uniforms but this becomes a huge huge thing in helping these men reestablish their identity and gives them give them something to be proud of now as i think of these soldiers in their winter camps i can imagine them proudly sewing on their newly assigned corps badges to their headgear and coats some probably acknowledge the reality of a terrible battle ahead and they had id discs made for them some blisters on their feet from drilling enjoyed taking a moment to light up a pipe of tobacco to decompress these items are all reproduced for you by our sponsor the badge maker his items will make your reenacting impression that much more authentic or make your home Civil War display really stand out. Please learn more by using the link in the show notes. He's going to have like, um, you know, minor construction projects, corduroying roads, uh, really building up the, uh, the infrastructure and, and logistics of the army so that they can get supplies down from Washington more effectively. So lots of stuff to just make sure that the soldiers are going to start getting what they need. Because desertion is so high, and a lot of it is just, you know, bad morale, but a lot of it's like, you know, I've got to go home and, and take care of my family for the winter type of thing. So he actually institutes a program where people are rewarded with furloughs. 
and they get to go home for 30 days. And he ties that to discipline. He ties that to, to attendance. And so regiments that, uh, that do well and, and perform well are rewarded for that. Folks get to go home. And that, of course, is a huge, huge thing. You know, you think about these guys sitting in these huts, these mud and wood huts on Christmas Eve, you know, wishing they could be home. Well, hookers give them that chance. Yes. You know, and so that becomes a, just a big, big thing. Um, so these are all the sorts of things that hookers are going to do to really concentrate on the men themselves and the infrastructure that supports them. And so what's extraordinary about this, and I don't think I'm exaggerating by using the word extraordinary, What's extraordinary about this is that he brings this army from the absolute low point of its career to being the army that wins at Gettysburg, okay? This becomes a trim, fit, fighting force. Now, of course, the one thing that happens before Gettysburg is the army's loss at Chancellorsville. Right. Um, what's the difference between Chancellorsville and Gettysburg? Army leadership. Hooker is the guy to rebuild this army, but he's not the guy to lead it into battle. And that was arguably the same thing with George McCullen. Well, so. that's something I wanted to ask about too, is how is this reorganization different from the reorganization or the organization that McClellan is credited for? Well, I think, um, you know, McClellan deserves huge, huge props for creating an army because he basically has to create what becomes the army of the Potomac out of whole cloth. Um, you know, you remember Irving McDowell in July of 61, he's like, I don't want to go out and fight yet. These guys are all green. It's like, I've got a big mob. And Lincoln's like, well, the other side's green too. Go at it and see what happens. And McDowell, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because he leads this mob onto the battlefield and they get routed. And so McClellan comes in and, you know, with his keen engineer's mind, he's got a, a background in the railroads and he make those trains run on time. And so he takes this mob and turns it into an army and he builds it up and he shows these guys what it means to be soldiers. And this is not some romantic adventure we're often having. We're here to do business. We mean business. We're going to be professional. So all those things to turn that mob into that army, McClellan gets credit for. It's just that when it became time to use that army, it's like, I, you know, th think about someone, you know, who's got a beautiful, beautiful Corvette and they spend all their time polishing it, looks gorgeous. I don't want to take that on the road. Something might happen to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Right, right. So he is credited with basically building that army, right? How is that different, though, from what happens under um, Hooker sure. here? And and that's a legitimate question because, you know, well, Hooker has something to work with. There's an army structure in okay. place already. These guys know how to be soldiers. But if you think about what has happened under McClellan on the battlefield, where these men have lost and lost and lost, and in some cases been humiliated. So for all the vaunted work that McClellan has done to turn them into the army, what good has it done them? They keep losing. Right. Um, even Antietam, which I will chalk up in the federal victory column, wasn't a stunning victory. You know, it was like, yeah, okay, we drove them out of Maryland. Okay, you know, but it wasn't like we crushed them. Right. You know? And Lee's still moving around out there. And then after the battle, like they don't have the supplies they need to go after. Uh, you know, so like McClellan does some great work. But I think as the great rock and roll sage Janet Jackson once said, what have you done for me lately? And uh, <laughs> like, okay, Mac, what have you done for me? You know? Right. So moving forward, you have this army and, and you kind of were sort of talking about it a little bit. Can you talk about how the army performs 
at Chancellorsville, do we see the army actually performing the soldiers themselves performing better? But like you said, maybe the leadership is not there. So there's a disconnect. The soldiers after Chancellorsville don't feel as though they were beaten. They felt like they were still ready to keep fighting. They, they felt like their leadership let them down. It wasn't that the Confederates got the best of them. Um, so they were ready for a rematch. So, I mean, that's one reason when they go into Gettysburg, like this is an army that knows that it can go toe to toe with Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia if they've got someone that's willing to back them up. And Hooker, they thought Hooker was going to be the guy, you know, fighting Joe for heaven's sakes. Who's, you know, who's the best guy to take us into? And, and, you know, as Hooker later explains, he loses confidence in Joe Hooker. And so that's really what causes the problems. Some other things that also, uh, you know, with all the great reforms that Hooker does manage to pull together, and he like, he reforms the intelligence service, he tries new communications technology. One of the things he does is he actually forms the cavalry into its own core and uses it as a strike force unfortunately he does not use it very effectively and that in in some ways is going to cripple him during the campaign so that's one fault of hookers that will come back and lead to his defeat another is that he gets into basically an argument a feud with his chief of artillery uh, henry hunt and uh, hunt's got very innovative ideas about how to use his artillery and mass the batteries and have them under a centralized control. And Hooker, as a former division commander, he he knows division commanders and corps commanders, they're going to want control of their own artillery. So he doesn't want to give them to Hunt. Uh, and in effect, during Chancellorsville, he banishes Hunt to the rear and like you make sure that the, uh, the river crossings are well covered. So in the middle of battle on the third day, the artillery starts to run out of ammunition because Hunt's not in the front to make sure all of the artillery is being serviced the way it needs to be. And that's 100% Joe Hooker's fault, not Henry Hunt's fault. Um, so again, there's just another one of those weaknesses in the system that Hooker creates. Uh, Meade will revisit that. He'll revisit his, his use of cavalry. Um, and I think those are things that help tip the balance in the Union's favor going into the Gettysburg campaign. Things are opening up. No pants and pajama online meetings are out of the window. Time to get out there but creating a wardrobe can be extremely time-consuming. Use the link below to access Gentleman's Box. This is a subscription service that'll deliver fashion accessories to your doorstep every month. With flexible billing, such as monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, and annually billing options, don't miss out on the chance to make a killer impression. Well, one of the things, just speaking about the cavalry, I, I remember reading in the book just how poor horse care was before Hooker uh, got in charge and how many horses were killed because of, uh, you know, just a mistreatment and people not knowing what they were doing. And it, and it starts right from the whole procurement process where the government is trying to buy horses from all across the North and, and Northeast. And, you know, like the old joke goes, uh, you know, uh, what's the government contractor going to give you if he's the lowest uh, lowest bidder, right? right. Uh, and so they're getting inferior quality horses to begin with. At first they come down and, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of horses to pull all those wagons and, and cavalrymen and artillery and there's not enough for them to eat, you know, there's not enough mules um, to, to help with the work. And so there's just too, too many animals, not enough food to feed them. And that is something that Hooker's actually going to pay a lot of attention to. But the Federal Cavalry at first has some horses that are pretty well played out, and Hooker's going to address that too. It's even worse on the Confederate side where, you know, there's a point where Jeb Stewart's not entirely confident that he's got the horsepower, literally the horsepower 
to do his cavalry operations in the spring. So they really have to spread out and, and find forage uh, on the Confederate side, where at least in the north, they've got a pretty strong infrastructure to bring that stuff in. Right. You also mentioned a little bit about the intelligence that he basically revamped, reworked. There was real no centralized intelligence bureau, right, for the army at that point. Uh, up to that point, it was really um, Pinkerton's detective agency working as McClellan's private intelligence gatherer. Pinkerton, uh, and he takes a lot of flack for this, and, and rightfully so, um, gathers a lot of information. I think he just has a calculator in his pocket that multiplies by two, and then, you know, <laughs> oh, here are the figures. So, you know, his, his checks and, and, uh, and counter checks uh, as part of his intelligence gathering aren't especially effective. So things get overinflated. So when when Hooker redoes his intelligence bureau, brings in George Sharp, I mean, Sharp revolutionizes the whole thing. There's a, a great uh, biography about him that just came out a couple years ago by Pete Soros that you know really talks about Sharp as being uh, this guy who in many ways, you know, he modernizes the intelligence service and in many ways helps the union win the war because now finally they have pretty, uh, pretty accurate intelligence gathering. Well, with all these achievements, let's move forward into to Gettysburg and beyond, really. How are these changes seen on the battlefield to work for the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg? Yeah, I think a lot of it ties back to just the morale of the common soldier, you know, because they they were in the pits over the winter and uh, Hooker boosted him up. I'll give some props to President Lincoln there, too. He comes in March and does a grand review of the Army. He meets with the Corps, goes around the camps, shaking hands, kissing babies, uh, talking to the wounded soldiers, that sort of thing. Great retail politics. It's one of Lincoln's finest moments in the war, and it really ties the men to him with, with their loyalty in a way they hadn't been tied to before. There had been a lot of skepticism of Lincoln in part because McClellan was a Democrat and he didn't like Lincoln and the contempt showed and uh, people just weren't sure what to make of this guy. A great book that came out last year by Zach Fry uh, called The Republic in the Ranks that sort of talks about the political profile of the Army of the Potomac. But Lincoln comes down and he binds these men to him uh, through that grand review. So between you know the substantial changes Hooker makes, um, sort of the more big picture visionary inspiration that Lincoln provides. This army that marches into Pennsylvania, they're going to protect their home turf. You know, this is an army that is absolutely ready and they're looking for payback from Chancellorsville. They're not shirking from this responsibility at all. They've got something to prove and they are ready to prove it. And they do a fantastic job at Gettysburg. And of course, under Grant, they do a fantastic job as well. Thanks to a lot of uh, what happened during this one winter, right? Uh, really, this is the winter that helps this army understand how to be an army and stay an army. You know, some say that, you know, it's not how you react to when you get knocked down, but how you get yourself back up, you know, and this is the army getting itself back up. Now, when Grant comes east in 1864, he's got a whole nother host of problems with this army because uh, enlistments have gone up, casualties have been so high. Two corps have been stripped away and sent to the West to help out Sherman. So it's a smaller army. Uh, and so he's going to have a whole lot of new uh, units come in, a lot of green recruits. Uh, he's going to bolster that with you know heavy artillery units from Washington, D.C. that uh, have been in the service for a while, but haven't been in the field at all. So he's going to have uh, some really interesting dynamics by 1864. But it's the foundation, really, that, that Hooker lays the previous winter that helps this army sustain itself through all of these changes and, and all this infusion of, of new blood. 
Is there anything left of these encampments that people can go see or that all gone now? Actually, there's there are some fantastic spots that folks can go and visit. Uh, probably the best is the Stafford Civil War Park, which is run by Stafford County, and it preserves uh, a bunch of uh, hut sites and artillery emplacements and just gives you a sense of, of what winter encampments were like. Um, the White Oak Museum also preserved a lot of uh, material from, from that winter. Unfortunately, the, uh, the owner of that museum died a couple years ago, D.P. Newton, legendary in this area for his knowledge of what those guys went through and his collection of, of uh, material culture that he got. Uh, but yeah, there are places you can go and, and see that. The army is basically spread out, spread out over like 100 square miles because you know, you've got 120,000 guys. They all need some elbow room. You don't want to create sanitation problems. You want to make sure there's enough places for everybody's horses to get something to eat. So they spread out over an incredible amount of space. And uh, Stafford County is one of the fastest growing regions in the state. So a lot of those places are getting plowed over. But fortunately, there are some places you can still go to see. Speaking of Civil War sites, let's take a look at our sponsor, Civil War Trails. Civil War Trails has marked and mapped Civil War historical sites across six states. With a Civil War Trails map, you can follow in the footsteps of the soldiers as they moved from site to site. You can bike, hike, drive, or even paddle these locations. There is something for everyone, so please use the link in the show notes, do not miss out, and hey, maybe you'll bump into me on the trail. Great stuff. And um, before we finish up here, one thing I will ask is, uh, of course, where can people get the book? And how can they learn more about you and Emerging Civil War? Sure, the book is published by Savis Beatty. It's actually been out for a few years. I, you know, I have to check inside real quick. I can't even remember when the book came out, to be honest. Uh, and I'll tell you a quick story about it. 2016. Um, so I was brought into this project because Al had, had done all this research, he'd written a manuscript, and it was just so densely packed full of great stuff. My job was to kind of go in there and rewrite the book. So I'm there as a writer, um, not necessarily as a researcher, and, and uh, kind of help the book breathe a little bit. Al shortly thereafter was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And fortunately, Ted Samus, the publisher, got the book out so, so Al could see the book, uh, but he passed away shortly after it was released. So it, it was a really nice memorial to Al that still exists with us. You can get it at the website, www.savvisbaby.com. And then you can join us at Emerging Civil War at www.emergingcivilwar.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing this story, talking about this amazing topic, and of course, talking about Albert Connor, because this is a fantastic uh, testament to his life, uh, his research and work. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Paul. He, I, I know one quick thing I'll add real, real quick before the end. You know, Al makes this comment that this winner is the single most important turning point of the war that didn't happen on a battlefield. That's a big claim, and I urge people to pick up this book and see if they agree with me or not. So thanks so much for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to that episode while you walked a dog, worked in the garage, crossing bayonets with a Louisiana tiger, avoiding the deadly accuracy of a Bernan sharpshooter, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to my Patreon supporters. You are the reason this podcast stays on the air and that episodes are able to come out consistently. If you're not a Patreon supporter and you want to see this show grow, please sign up and enjoy some exclusive perks. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and give us a five-star review on iTunes, if so inclined. And if you could, subscribe on YouTube. 
great YouTube content coming at you separate from these audio episodes. So don't miss out on that. Be safe and tune in next time for our next episode.